Good morning, ladies. It is a joy to be with you. EWG has a very, very special place in my heart um, for lots of different reasons, but one primarily that just encouraged me, and I think Lauren alluded to it a few moments ago, as a young wife and a mama with three little ones that we prayed the Lord would give us our babies close together, the Lord responded. And uh, I think our two that are the farthest apart are 18 months apart. So it was a little bit crazy. And I was trying to figure out how was I supposed to have my quiet time when I'm also running around with my babies and EWG was such a blessing. I was given the tools. I was given the time. I was able to bring our little ones to the nursery. It was just so wonderful. It also provided friendships that were based upon scripture. So our conversations were just continually about what the Lord was teaching us, how we needed to tackle our sin, repentance. EWG just opened the door to loving the Lord and getting to know him. But it also opened the door to friendships. Uh, friendships on a whole deeper level, mostly, not mostly, but part of it was because, yes, we were talking about scripture, but then we're all learning the same thing. And so even though I may not get to talk to every single one of us, we're all learning, we're all studying, we're all excited about the word of God. And when our youngest was born, he was born with some health issues. I was in EWG and EWG surrounded us with love, with prayer, with food, with gifts, with toys. We would have people coming to our home, people who we didn't know, but we were all studying scripture together. So it was just a lovely time. Our doctors, I remember at one point, um, someone, two people had come that I didn't know, but they were from church and they had gifts and food and like a drink that they brought me at the hospital. And we'd already been in the hospital for a couple of months. And this nurse walks in and she was just like, who? are these people. And I was just able to tell her, this is the body of Christ. We're studying the word together and we love one another. And she was like, so you don't know these people. And I was like, well, I do. We study the word of God together. We're the church. We love each other. And it was just a means to share with an unbelieving world, the love that we have been given by Christ, but the love that we also share with one another. So EWG has a special place, and as the craziness resolved itself with Silas, it also became what one of the tools that we used to teach our children. So I would try to think that you know my quiet time needed to be with classical music playing and a hot cup of coffee and sitting down while the house was quiet and the children were playing peacefully. You know, we all have this idyllic view. That was not going to happen. Um, So it quickly became mommy was going to read scripture to whatever she was having to do in EWG, whatever she gets to do in EWG. And I would ask them the questions. And it was so fun. They were teeny tiny and we still do it to this day. And my lesson quickly became filled with scribbles because they were helping me answer the questions. Um, Our children are never too young, my friends, to hear the word of God. And what a sweet treat we have. Um, to not only be here with one another, but then to talk to our husbands, to talk to our neighbors about the things that we are learning in Scripture. EWG is such a wonderful ministry, and what a wonderful opportunity that we all get to be a part of it. So let's treasure it while we can. Um, Let's see. Acts. (laughs) That's what we're here to talk about. 
Acts. <laughs> this past break, we all were encouraged to read the book of Acts several times over. And I don't know about you, but Acts is just super exciting. It reads more like a novel because they're, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, is the perfect author. He ends the chapters and you're just wondering what's what's going to happen next? And so you go jump onto the next chapter because it's just amazing the way that the Lord has established his church, the way that we are able to appreciate and enjoy and be part of this family because of what we see happening in Acts. What an amazing treat. Well, two weeks ago, our lovely Lynn Brown left us on a cliffhanger. What is going to happen to Paul? In 21, he's being accused by this mob. They're coming to him. And today, we get to tackle Acts 22 and Acts 23. I'm very excited to do this with you all. We're going to have three points to help guide us through the two chapters and to help us focus on who God is and his sovereignty. So the three points are God is sovereign over salvation, God is sovereign over circumstances, and God is sovereign over governments. Say that again. God is sovereign over salvation. God is sovereign over circumstances. And God is sovereign over governments. Let's jump. So, quick refresher. I don't know about you, but it just helps me to jump into Acts 22. So, Acts 21, Paul goes to the temple, the mob is outraged. The Jewish mob, they're incensed at just seeing Paul. He's not even talking yet. They're looking at him and they are outraged. They're furious. The Roman tribune gets involved. Paul gets thrown. He gets bound and thrown into the barracks. So we're referring back to what Agabus had told us. Paul is start, startles the tribune by speaking respectfully in Greek who learns that this rebel rouser, whom he thought, is actually an educated Jewish man. He's not the anarchist that he thought was from Egypt. So the tribune allows him to speak to the mob and to everyone who's assembled there. So Paul now stands on the step. This is the beginning of 22. He stands on the step, and this will forever change the rest of his ministry. The rest of his ministry, he will spend most of his final days in prison and in and out of house arrest. His life is just vastly different than what he had thought was going to happen. Paul will defend himself a total of six times in the remaining books of Acts. Now, we're in Acts 22. There are only 28 chapters in the book of Acts. This is incredible. He has to defend himself this many times. So we're jumping in to Acts 22, one of his defenses now. Let's start at our first point. God is sovereign over salvation. Paul is about to tell us his amazing testimony of how God has sovereignly saved him. He, be- he begins his address with respect to the people who were just trying to kill him. And I don't know about you, but if someone was trying to kill me, I probably wouldn't even be wanting to speak to them. I probably wouldn't be responding respectfully to them, but Paul speaks to them respectfully. And he even refers to them in verse one, read with me, he tells them, brothers and fathers, Paul is living out 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 25, where it says, and the Lord's servants must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, 
able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. It's amazing, my friends. Verse 2 says he also addressed them in Hebrew, which surprises the mob. And so they become silent and they listen intently to what he has to say. Paul walks through his heritage. He was born in Tarsus. He is the son of a Pharisee. He studied under Gamaliel. He knows the law. He himself is a Pharisee. Verse 3 says, Being zealous for God as all of you are this day, I persecuted the way to the death. Paul manages to compliment them in their fervor for the law and says that his own fervor far surpassed theirs. He went and tried to kill people who were against the law. But before Christ, Paul, like the Jews, had a zeal for God that Romans 10.2 says that was not according to knowledge. So in Acts 6.22, Paul explains how God actually revealed himself to Paul. God is the one who sovereignly initiated the salvation of Paul. Let's go ahead and read together Acts 22 from verse 6 through 16. Or actually, I'll read so we can all just, you can follow along. Um, starting at verse 6, it says, As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand to those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Paul who had killed men and women for their faith in Christ, had now met and seen the risen Christ and immediately begins to obey him. (laughs) That's just amazing. Only the Spirit can do something like this. So now we're going to see the second time that we are hearing of this amazing way of God calling Paul his own. God is the one who initiated the salvation. And Paul is using his testimony of a changed life to give glory to God and to show that the purpose of his life had changed completely. It was drastically different than it was before. 
Not only has God sovereignly saved Paul, he then gives him a specific role, and God reveals to Paul what that is in a trance while he's in Jerusalem. And I just want to take a quick pause on this because I had a lot of questions, like, a trance? It sounds a little creepy. Um, so I went to the Merriam Dictionary just to kind of see what the English language says a trance is, and that was not helpful because it means a stupor or daze. I thought that's really not what happened to Paul. So um, we're going to look at the way it's used in Scripture. We're going to see where it's happened before to assure ourselves that Paul is not in La La Land. So this same word is used earlier in Acts to describe Peter's vision at Joppa in Acts 10. Remember, Acts is a descriptive book. It's not prescriptive. We are not looking for trances and for visions in our own lives. But this is what the Lord used to speak to his apostles, to speak to Peter and to speak to Paul. This was a unique and divine revelation from God to the leaders of his church at this time. And during this trance, God speaks to Paul and tells him what he's going to do with his life. God has sovereignly saved Paul, and he wants him to leave Jerusalem as quickly as possible because he, God, knows that the Jews won't believe Paul's message. But Paul, Paul once again shows his heart of love for his people. They are lost. They have rejected the risen Christ. So let's look at verses 19 through 21. It says, And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. God transformed Peter's heart and has given him a message. So now we're learning that God sovereignly saved Paul, and now he's going to use Paul to go and to share the gospel with the rest of the world. This comes, I'm sure, as shocking news to Paul. And in the same way that God sovereignly reached out to save Paul, while Paul was an enemy of Christ, killing the people who loved Christ and believed in Christ, God is doing the same thing today, my friends. We all have a different story. We all have different backgrounds. But God's salvation is the same in every case. He takes a wicked sinner, and calls that person to himself. God chooses and God saves. Praise the Lord. What a wonderful reminder of what we have been saved from and what we are saved to. And what a sweet knowledge to know that God uses us for his glory. God is going to use Paul to send the good news to the Gentiles. And as we can kind of assume is going to happen, the Jewish mob, this kind of sends them a little psycho. They just lose it. They've been listening intently to Paul. They're amazed at what he is saying. And then he says that God told me to go and spread this to the Gentiles. They lose it. 
They are the Jews. They're the ones that only have the way. And they are superior in the spiritual realm to the rest of the world. And Paul just told them now that they are equal to the Gentiles. They lose it. They just completely, they can't even handle it. They lose it. And so we're going to now jump to our second point. God is sovereign over circumstances. They lose it. They lose it at Paul's declaration that the risen Messiah has come to the Gentiles. The Jews can't handle this. They lose it. They begin to do something that Paul alludes to earlier. They begin to take off their cloaks. Who was the one who held the cloaks in Acts 7? That was Saul. Paul knows exactly what's going to happen. They're wanting to stone him. They can't handle what he's about to say. So they're taking off their cloaks. They're starting to raise the dust. They're, you just envision, in my mind, I'm very visual. So I'm just imagining what's going on. Paul has been speaking. Everyone is quiet. They're listening. And he says this one line. And it's like you can almost just see the fury rising inside of them, turning red. And they can't handle it. They lose it. They start taking off their cloaks. They're going to pick up some rocks. They're going to stone this man who dares to take the truth to people that they hate. Well, the tribune, the Roman law at the time, over the Jews, he's trying to figure out how this one man can rise up and get all these people so agitated. So he responds in 24, he says, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. So God takes this man, this tribune officer who's not, who hates God. He doesn't know the law. He takes him back. He takes Paul to the barracks. They're getting ready. They're stretching Paul out to receive the flogging. Most prisoners, ladies, I just wanted to think about this, what what a flogging is. The Roman flagellum was this wooden handle that has strings of leather, whips on it, And at different intervals on each one, there is a metal piece. That way, when it would hit the person, it would grab around, grab flesh, and pull back. This was not a gracious and kind way of interrogating a prisoner. Most prisoners either bled to death or died because of the exposure of their muscles and their organs. This was also something that was not permitted by Roman law to happen to the Roman citizens. The centurion has Paul stretched out. And Paul, I can only imagine. Verse 25, Paul turns respectfully and says, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Paul, a Roman-educated Jew, knows the law. He knows that the penalty for flogging a Roman citizen is actually death. So he just saved this person's life. He also knows that claiming to be a Roman citizen falsely leads to death. So this is not something that you just do to get yourself out of a quick spanking. This is, this is legitimate. The centurion stops exactly what he's doing. This is not taken lightly. The centurion brings this Roman citizen prepares him to be flogged, and the Roman citizen says, oh, how about this? God sovereignly is orchestrating in this. I just, 
it just caused me to stop and marvel at what God is able to do and how he is sovereignly in control of Paul's birthplace. God is sovereign over the seemingly small circumstances, and Paul rests in that. He doesn't panic. He responds calmly and asks a question. He knows, Paul knows that he will suffer. Paul knows that he will be bound, but he trusts that the Lord is in control and his obedience is to proclaim the good news of the risen Christ to the Gentiles. This small detail that Paul had no control over is what the Lord sovereignly uses to free Paul from a horrible punishment and, as we'll later see, gives him further audience with the tribune, the Gentile tribune, to share the gospel. God is sovereign over the smallest thing that we don't even have an idea. The tribune is still wanting answers. This problem has not been solved in Acts 22. There's still a mad ruckus going on with the Jews. They hate Paul. He can no longer punish Paul because he's a Roman citizen. They need answers. So the tribune goes ahead and he calls for a council with the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin and Paul and the tribune are all going to sit together. And I just wanted to review really quickly who and what the, the Sanhedrin are. The Sanhedrin are a Jewish ruling authority that is made up of the Jew, of Pharisees and Sadducees and the high priest. It's typically a group of 71 men. They have their own police. They are able, at this time under Roman law, they are able to punish Jewish people who break the Jewish law. They do not have authority to use capital punishment. So, they hate Paul. They want to see Paul dead. They can't kill Paul legally. So they're going to sit before the tribune, and they are both about to present their cases to the tribune. Paul is sitting before both parties. So let's look at verse 1 of chapter 23. It says, And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. This, uh, this looking intently means that Paul is fixing his eyes on them. Paul is focusing on them and on his mission to share the gospel with the Gentiles. Paul has complete trust in God's sovereignty, in God's will, and in his innocence. He's obeying what God has called him to do. He speaks to them respectfully, just as the Pharisaical law calls him to do. But then he makes a bold assertion. I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Paul's statement is reminding them that they, the Sanhedrin, are not opposing Paul, but God, since God is the one who put Paul in this mission. This just made me sit and think for a second. Um, We as mankind, we're all born with a conscience. Conscience is the highest moral standard that a person is able to base their decisions through. Question. 
does this mean we should always trust our conscience? No, (laughs) no, 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 no. Let's just think back to Paul. Paul himself trusted his conscience and then went and killed people. Until, friends, we repent of our sin and believe in the atoning work of Christ, our conscience will lead us to death. It is only as our conscience is informed and transformed by the word of God that we can say with Paul, a good conscience before God. As soon as Paul gives this one opening statement respectfully to the Sanhedrin, things get dicey. Things get dicey. Ananias, who is the high priest, um, he orders that Paul get punched right in the face. Now, Josephus, who is an unbelieving Jewish historian, reports that Ananias was one of the most cruel high priests that the Jews had seen. He was ruling for about 11 to 12 years, and even the Jews hated Ananias. He was known for stealing from the common priests. And if anyone resisted, well, he would have them beat up. He was known for using brute force to get his way. Though he was Jewish, he was also pro-Roman. He hated his own people. And we're going to get a glimpse of his blatant disregard for Jewish law and for Roman law right now. Ananias orders Paul to get struck. Now, this is more than just like a slap in the face, like, you don't speak to me like that. No, no, no. This is the word that is used to describe the beatings that our Savior Jesus Christ received before the cross. This is a hard hit in the face. In the gall and audacity of Ananias to go against both Jewish and Roman law in a court hearing, an official court hearing in front of the tribune shows his abuse of power, but actually it just shows his hatred for God. Paul responds in anger in verse 3. And in my estimation, it kind of seems like a righteous anger. (laughs) Um, He quotes Ezekiel's denunciation of the false prophets as whitewashed walls in Ezekiel 19. Once again, this is pointing to Paul's knowledge of the law. Paul is yet to be charged with a crime. Paul is already being beaten, and he gets angry. Now, Luke is a descriptive book. I shouldn't say Luke. Acts is a descriptive book written by Luke. It's describing what's going on. Luke doesn't tell us if what Paul did was sin. But we see the opposite of what Jesus did when he suffered the same kind of strike. Either way, when Paul learns that he had just condemned the high priest, he responds with contrition and humility. Let's read the exchange in verse 4. Verse 4 says, Those who stood by say, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Paul's humility, even in that moment, ladies, is an example to us of how to respond. 
Paul understands that he's not going to get a fair trial. He's sitting before the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He himself was also a Pharisee. So Luke tells us that Paul begins to plead with the Pharisees by telling them, he even throws in the gospel in his pleads right here. He says, we believe in the resurrection, not like the Sadducees. So an immediate divide immediately happens between the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Luke explains the difference in verse 8. He says, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Pharisees and Sadducees had this massive difference in belief. The Sadducees denying the supernatural and the Pharisees believing it. This doctrinal divide between these two parties prompted some of the Pharisees to begin shouting out during the hearing, siding with Paul and going against the Sadducees. This dissension, as Luke says, was so great. This just makes me laugh. Um, That Luke tells us that the tribune fears in verse 10 that Paul would be torn to pieces. This just doesn't sound like a shouting match. There is great anger for the tribune to think that they're going to take this witness and to like pull him apart and tear at him. This anger, this animosity between the Pharisees and the Sadducees is great. And it's just amazing that the Lord uses these men who don't know him for his glory to fulfill his purposes. Paul's history, God uses Paul's history as a Pharisee. He uses Paul's knowledge of the Sadducean doctrine. He uses this Roman official to rescue Paul. All of this is necessary for God's will. God is sovereign over all of these things that seem absolutely horrible, that seem absolutely negative. The Roman tribune takes Paul away And something absolutely lovely, absolutely gracious and kind happens in this next portion. And honestly, girls, when I was reading it, it just caused me to cry and to thank the Lord and to praise him. Paul is in his cell. He's beaten. He's been bound. He's probably not sure how. God is going to use all of these things to allow him to proclaim the message of his good news to the Gentiles. So let's read verse 11. Because it just made me cry. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Friends, how gracious is our Savior? The Lord appears to Paul. He comforts, he encourages, he exhorts, he gives him hope. The Lord reminds Paul of what he has done and promises that Paul will preach in Rome. Paul knows that he will face opposition. He's living it. He can rest in the promise that God himself told him. God is sovereign 
in all circumstances. God's hand in all of this is so kind and gracious to Paul. He comforts him and he loves him. And as Paul is, this one second, I'm like an emotional roller coaster, I think. Because this one second, I'm like crying of how the Lord is responding to Paul so lovingly. And then in this next portion in Acts 23, it just kind of leaves me laughing at what the Lord sovereignly does. So Paul is in prison and the Jews are still very angry at Paul and his message. They are so angry, in fact, that they are now coming up with a plan to kill him. Some of this Jewish mob, 40 of them to be precise, are planning on now to kill him and have pledged that they will not eat till Paul is dead. What? They sound like two-year-olds. I'm not going to eat this. Um, They take this pledge and they take it to the high priest, who we can assume is a Sadducee because the Pharisees ended up siding with Paul. And it's just really simple. The Sadducees are going to call for a council with the tribune and with Paul. And on the way to the council, they are going to kill Paul. This is what they want to do. (laughs) And then this is the funny part. I mean, the funny part is also the pledge. But the interesting sovereign part of the Lord is that Paul's nephew, whom we've really not heard about, hears about this plot. He hears about the plot, and through a prisoner, though Paul is a prisoner and he's bound, he's actually, sorry, I read that wrong. Paul is not bound because it's not legal to bind Roman, rule, Roman citizens, but he has guards all around him. The guards allow Paul's nephew to go in and to tell Paul what he just heard. Paul's nephew relays information to Paul, and Paul quickly calls for the centurion and asks for his nephew to give the tribune this important news. Because Paul is a Roman citizen, they're treating all of this as very important. They take him quickly over. This is the first time we've heard anything about Paul's family from Luke. And I was just left with a lot of questions like, where did this person come from? Who is this nephew? Who is his mother? Who is his father? Why are they in Jerusalem? Tarsus is really, really far away. Um, We don't know. We don't know. And these are one of the things that we get to ask Paul when we go to heaven. What happened to his family? Um, Because we don't see this family member mentioned later on at all. So back to the the story. The centurion takes the nephew to the tribune. Verse 18, the tribune takes the nephew and speaks to him privately. The nephew relays not only the plot, but the dramatic pledge that some of them, some of the Jews have seen to see Paul dead. God's sovereignty, ladies. Because the tribune doesn't take this lightly. He doesn't just cast it aside. He takes it as serious, and he sees the information as dire. And he understands that he needs to take this prisoner, who is a Roman citizen, who is a Jew, to his governor, to his ruling authority, Governor Felix, who's in Caesarea. Friends, it's not just amazing how God is sovereignly working in all of these little circumstances to bring himself glory? Can we not see how God is sovereignly at work ordering all of these events, all of these outbursts of anger for his glory? 
Would this have been the way that I would have foreseen the best way for Paul to go and spread the gospel to the Gentiles? Nope. Absolutely not. I, if I were Paul, or if I knew Paul, I would have chosen no pain for his reputation to remain intact, for him to travel with friends and family, to have a nice soft bed, to probably have a cup of coffee. Like, that would be Crystal Grauman's way for Paul to be able to go forth. But that is not what the Lord used. Paul was able to trust that God was sovereignly working in his life and that Paul would just need to walk faithfully and obey and proclaim the gospel wherever the Lord had him, no matter how hard, no matter how negative all of the circumstances were. You see, earlier in Acts, Acts 1.8, God promises that the gospel had to spread from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Paul has to make it to Rome. And so God sovereignly uses all of these little circumstances to get Paul to Rome for his glory. My friends, do we trust that God is sovereign over all of the small things in our life? Do we respond obediently to what the Lord has us in our circumstances, whether good or negative? I want to be like Paul. I want to trust God and obey even when everything seems humanly awful. This brings us to our third and final point. God is sovereign over governments. The book of Acts demonstrates some of the most amazing ways that God shows his power, even his power over pagan officers. Starting in verse 22, we see the power and the means that the tribune was able to use in order to protect God's messenger. The tribune orders. This list was just crazy amazing to me. My boys got really excited about it. Um, the, The tribune orders 200 soldiers. These are not just normal everyday soldiers. These are legionnaires. They were the most formidable soldiers of their day. That would be like 200 Navy SEALs of our day. 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen. That's about 500 people protecting Paul. Oh, but he also provided horses. He provided mounts for Paul to travel. And he did this all that night. Just quickly got it together. Governor Felix's headquarters were in Caesarea, which is about 65 miles north of Jerusalem. And that would be about like from Grace Church to Carpinteria. And he wants them to leave as quickly as possible. All of these 500 soldiers. The tribune also sends a letter and summarizing the situation to Felix. So let's read verse 29. It says, I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. 
Friends, do you not see the irony in all of this? The pagan official that was placed by God, who does not fear God, was used by God to not only protect God's messenger, but then to defend him. Paul and his almost 500 military escort reached the halfway mark between Jerusalem and Caesarea and Antipatris in verse 31. They spend the night there, and then they continue the next day, and they arrive in Caesarea and deliver Paul and the letter to Governor Felix. Felix reads the letter and asks Paul where he's from and determines that he does have jurisdiction over this issue. So Paul is going to wait there very safely in Herod's Praetorium. Friends, this is like the nicest house on the block. Paul is traveling. He's defended. He's now waiting, waiting for his accusers to come. God is sovereign in all of this. I'm sure Paul couldn't even have drummed this. God, my friends, is able to do whatever is necessary for the expansion of the gospel. He used fallen God-haters to take the gospel beyond Jerusalem. Proverbs 22.1 says, The king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. And I have to be honest, this, this really hit home this week for me. Because it's easy for me right now to read the news and to be shocked at what is going on in our world. It's, it's sometimes hard for me to believe that God is sovereign over governments who throw pastors in prison. For preaching his truth. Closing down churches, not allowing... How how is God going to use this? My friends, our hearts can be encouraged. Seeing the way that the Lord shows his care and his faithfulness to Paul through men and governments that hate him. God is in control over governments. God is sovereign over salvation He is sovereign over circumstances, and he is sovereign over governments. Nothing can stop the will of God. Nothing gets in the way of God's sovereign will. As we recognize God's sovereignty over all these things in these last two chapters, Luke continues to help us understand how the early church gets started. And we can consider the truth that God remains sovereign over everything, God remains sovereign over what is happening in the world. God is sovereign over our country. God is sovereign over our families. He is sovereign over our hearts. My friends, how has God's perfect providence been evident in your life over this past year or just this past week? I would encourage you to just jot down one or two things, maybe three things, of the ways that you have seen God tenderly care for you, love you, provide for you, show his mercy, forgive you. These are blessings from an almighty, omnipotent God toward his own. 
My friends, there are probably maybe some of you here who do not know this kindness of Jesus Christ. You do not yet know what it is to trust in, your, in our Savior. And I just want you to consider what we've learned about him today, to think about where you stand before him. Are you willing to confess your sin and repent? To acknowledge his provision through Christ's blood on the cross? My friends, today is the day of salvation. Trust in your loving and sovereign God. My friends, may we be also ready to preach like Paul preached. May we repent of our sin. May we always bring God glory, no matter the circumstances, for he is sovereign and worthy of all praise. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you are sovereign and in control. Lord, we praise you that you have chosen us to be your children. And we beg of you, Lord, that you would make us more like your son, that we would repent of our sin, and that we would seek you wholeheartedly with our lives. Give us boldness like Paul, Lord, to preach your word to all whom are around. We thank you so much for this time. And it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.